Hello, leaders, and welcome to Connections, the podcast. This is where we sit down with some of our friends and talk about how God wants to use us to lead the women in our community to be better women, mothers, and leaders. I'm Kelly Jordan, and our guest today is Sarah Damasca. Sarah lives in rural Michigan with her pastor husband and three school-aged kids. Shaped by the death of her daughter, Annie, she writes about God's invitation to live in the intersection of hope and sorrow. Every autumn, she boards a plane to visit her friends in Haiti who have broken free from a life of prostitution, teaching her the power of redemption and how Jesus makes all things new. She is a devotional writer and blog editor for the Joyful Life magazine. She leads a Bible study at her church, and she's a fan of Mops. She's been a Mops mom, and she's spoken to several Mops groups. So, Sarah, welcome. We're so glad you're here today. Thank you. Well, we are really excited to just kind of jump in and hear some of your story because there's so many parts of your story I want to talk about. So um, let's just jump right in and let me ask you this question. On your blog, your your subtitle Mm -hmm. is Living in the Intersection of Hope and Sorrow. What does that mean and what brought you to that intersection? Well, I would say that up until 2009, my life uh, was pretty much what I had always expected it to be. I had uh, two toddlers and a baby and uh, a husband. We were just kind of trucking along. And when our baby Annie was um, about five months old, we were concerned about some symptoms we were seeing and went to the doctor and even had a hospital stay. Finally, um, it was discovered that she had a really massive brain tumor. And at the time we found it, uh, it had progressed. It was quite critical. And so we found it on a Saturday and by Tuesday she um, had died. And so all of a sudden the life that had been so perfect, it was no more. And so I was forced to really grapple with a lot of things that I had taken for granted. I had decisions to make. Uh, Was God's word still true? Could I still trust him? And so I remember the day that I laughed again. The first time I laughed again, and I had been in such deep sorrow. My kids did something funny. They were two and four at the time. All of a sudden, I thought, I'm I'm going to have to hold both of these in my hand. I don't have to choose either hope or sorrow. I can hold on to both of these. And it's, it's a, it was a hard fight. It still is a hard fight, but we can hold both of those things simultaneously. I'm sorry for your loss. And, and, but you, you talked about holding both of those. And so tell us a little bit about the work that went into that, the, the work of grief, how you struggled through some of that sorrow. I remember thinking, I really want a big turning point. I really There were several months that we were just so sad and everything was so um, intensely sad. And I remember thinking, I just want a turning point, Lord. I just want, I just want something to, to just switch for us. You're raising two preschoolers, working on a marriage that is full of grief and sorrow is hard. I remember being really exhausted and really overwhelmed. And I realized that was a season and it's not like that as much anymore. Although I will say that I never really returned to who I was. There's this constant struggle. I think that our default is to numb the pain that we're in, to just kind of bury it underneath and say, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to manufacture this joy and hope 
um, and we bury our sorrow with just more things to do. Or, or there's a number of ways that we can numb our pain. But I think what God wants us to do is to just sit with our sorrow and to let him truly heal us. And I discovered there's always an and. You can have sorrow and bitterness or anger. You can hold on to the past. And I think that's our natural drift. Or you can work and you can have sorrow and you can hold on to joy and hope and love. And it's a fight um, and you can't do it without Jesus, without just surrendering to him and saying, things are hard, but I believe that you have a better plan. And I believe that you can bring brokenness and redemption out of, out of this grief and sorrow. And so that's what we did. We worked and we, we sat with our pain and we talked a lot and cried a lot. And uh, we still do even 10 years later, but we're seeing the fruit of, of that hard season. I would think that helping your children, your other children work through that grief was very difficult and probably is yeah. ongoing. Yes, um, absolutely. So do you have, do you have a few things that you can tell us specifically that you might've done to help you work through it, but then also okay. to help your children work through it? We, we talked a lot. I remember there are a few questions that they had and I had to choose not to be offended by their words and their questions. They were just little kids. They were trying to work it out. And even now, so my son is 15 and my daughter is 12. And then we had another daughter after Annie died and she is almost nine. So we've had to work as they've gone through different stages and processed it in different ways. And even now with my youngest, Eliza, we're processing how does she grieve a sister that she never knew? And how does she work out her place in the family? Because she didn't live through the grief and the sorrow, but Annie is still her sister. And that's still something that she has to grieve over. It's the strangest thing, but it, we talk a lot about things and we um, process a lot together as a family. So. I know that um, many of our leaders can identify with your story because they've suffered a similar loss, yes. but others find themselves in a position where they're supporting a friend in the midst yes. of loss. So they're coming yeah. alongside someone like you or someone like your children trying to support them. So how can we help our yeah. friend who's in a position like this? Well, first of all, it's never going to be easy. And still, as someone who has walked burying a child myself, it's still not easy sometimes for me to walk with someone else because the words that come out of your mouth always seem awkward and you never are quite sure you're doing the right thing. But I would say bringing it up, even when you think it might hurt, mm -hmm. um, is still very important. And that takes courage. But it, and I remember people would say to me, well, I didn't want you to think about it if you weren't thinking about it already. And especially during those early days, you're always thinking about it. It's mm -hmm. always just right under the surface. And so having the courage to bring it up is just a really important thing. And using the name of the child or of the spouse or anyone who has died is really important too. I realize that I say my other kids' names all the time in all sorts of different ways, but I don't use Annie's name in the same way. And so when someone brings her name up, even if it's, uh, even if it's a normal conversation, that always just means so much to me. And the other thing I would say is it meant a lot to me in those early days when people would let go of the expectations for me. 
For example, if you take a meal to a mom, don't expect a thank you note. Or if you make a phone call and they don't answer, don't take that personally. Some of those little things were just so overwhelming to me that um, I couldn't get them all done. It's not that I didn't want to. Just some of those little things were so overwhelming. So when others let me off the hook, it meant the world to me. That's such good advice. I want to go back to your personal story for just yeah. a minute and, and, and ask you this. I'm, I'm sure that your relationship, you've talked a little bit about how the relationship with your spouse and with your children changed, but how did your relationship with Jesus change <laughs> as a result of losing Annie? I had a lot of questions that I'd never had before. And I grew up loving Jesus and just believing my whole life. And when everything kind of came to a crashing halt, I realized I was at a real crossroads. And was I going to take him for who he said he was? And was I going to believe the words of the Bible or is it over? You know, and so you get to that point where you just have to question some of that. And I have to say that Jesus was so precious to me in that time. And I don't know that it would have been possible without him. There's a catchphrase, there's beauty in brokenness. And I didn't understand what that meant until I went through it. And over and over, I saw the gifts that God had given me, even in the midst of sorrow, and how he would just take what little I had to offer, and he turned it into something amazing. I often say that I felt like those first months, I was kind of wrapped in a fog, and that he was just gently carrying me. And there are so many verses in the Bible that came to me in a different way than I had ever processed them before. Um, Verses like he's close to the brokenhearted and he rescues those who are crushed in spirit. And you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. In 2 Corinthians, he says, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. I process those in a different way. And I realized he is still with us in our brokenness, especially in our brokenness. I just wrapped myself up in that truth. And he was just so very, very precious to me in those first months and years. You, you said a few minutes ago something about um, redeeming some of the grief. Mm-hmm. And, and so how is it possible to bring, <laughs> to bring beauty and redemption out of something so horrible? Yeah. That's part of the work of grief. That's part of sitting in the pain and not numbing it that, um, you start to redeem it. I would say that that came about through friendships. All of a sudden, especially a few years later, I would have people who would come to me who had gone through the same thing or have gone through similar griefs. And the way I can relate to them, the way that I can walk through them in their grief is a redemption to me. I wouldn't be able to do that if I hadn't lost Annie, not in the same way. There have been so many small gifts from God that I have had through the years. One of the most precious ones, and the way that God has reminded me that he is with me, is that on what would have been Annie's first birthday, my mom handed me a packet of seeds, uh, and they were Sweet Annie seeds. And I didn't know that there was anything named Sweet Annie. So I planted them in the ground, and they came up, and they bloomed. And for every year, for the next 10 years, On the week of her death, when we celebrate that week that we just recount the terrible things that happened every year, that's when the sweet Annie blooms. And it's a reminder to me that God is with us 
in the smallest ways that we never could imagine. So he brings this beauty out of things that he wouldn't have to care about me in that way. And yet he does. And when we open our eyes to see it, unwrap the gifts that he gives us, it's, it's the most amazing redemption. And I will never be able to make a pros and cons list. No matter how many amazing and wonderful things happen, I will wish for her my entire life. I would wish that she, I wish that she would be with us. But there are so many ways that I have grown and so many things that have happened that I can see the fingerprints of God and I can see the difference that she has made in my own life and in the lives of other people. And it's just, it's beautiful. It is. That's a beautiful story. Yeah. It's a beautiful story about the sweet Annie's. I believe that the grief is something that is always with you, that it doesn't, it doesn't ever go away. So how have you taken that grief? And you've mentioned a little bit, but how have you created it as brought it in as kind of a rhythm in your life? Mm. Uh, When the kids were little, uh, those first few years that we were so sad um, and we would approach the anniversary of her death. And my kids were like, well, we need to celebrate. And I would say, I, I can't celebrate this. I just want to be in bed all day and just forget that it all ever happened. I just don't even want to face the day. But they were so adamant that this is something we should celebrate. And so uh, we worked hard at establishing some rhythms as a family. Um, little things like making banana muffins because we had been feeding her bananas toward the time of her death and some simple low expectation things that we just decided to do every year um, uh, that we would be generous to others on the week of her death and her birthday. And then one of those rhythms really came out of nowhere for me. And that was a phone call from a friend who said, would you like to go to Haiti with me? And something triggered in my mind at that time. I was so sad and I was tired of being so desperately sad. And I think sometimes when you're in grief, you tend to isolate yourself and you just, you just want to be alone. When you start looking up and out, you realize I'm not the only one that's grieving. There's a whole world of grieving people. And so I said yes to go to Haiti. And when I went the first time, it was brutally hard. It was just, it was very emotional. It was very, it was very hot. Um, it was an exhausting week of, of seeing people in such poverty. I'd never experienced such deep poverty. And at the same time, I realized these are people who are full redemption in my life. So every year since then, I, um, have found myself in Haiti going back to the same people and the same work for each year. Tell us a little more about what drew you there in the first place. In your book, you say that you started praying that God would give you a heart of compassion and eyes to look outward. And Mm -hmm. that led you to work with this organization. So Haiti is a long way from Michigan where you are. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure it felt very hot there. So so what about it drew you in so much to go back every year? The first year I went, I said it was really, it was really hard. It was really difficult. And then I found myself back there six months later. Uh, my friend just needed someone to go with her. We celebrated the wedding of the pastor of the church down there. And so I went twice in six months and something just, something just burst open in me. I just thought, this is my sweet spot. This is where 
this is where God has me right now. And so we went a few years and my third trip there, I always say it wasn't my idea. I just kind of tagged along and I get to reap the benefits of this. But um, there had been a few ladies that had been to the brothel a few times. And so I found myself uh, visiting these ladies at a brothel. I actually remember sitting in the corner. I was so overwhelmed. I have never been in a place like that. It just was desperately, desperately hopeless and sad. I remember one of the ladies pointing at me and saying, why is she so quiet over there? And I was just afraid that if I even said a word, I would just burst into tears. And so that undid me. That just, I knew I would never get over being there. So through a lot of hard work, the next year we decided, what if, what if we would offer these ladies a job? What if we would open up to them a new world? And so the next year we found ourselves sitting around a table with, at that time, they were still prostitutes. We, we sat there with them and we taught them how to make very simple magazine beads. And I realized some of them could not even cut. They could not even use scissors. They had never been taught the things that little girls all do here. And I realized the role of creativity and what had been taken from them. And so we worked with them a week and then we went back the next year and we kept working with them until now we have ladies who this is their full-time work. They've left prostitution. They have learned to do amazing things. It's a story that I have a hard time talking about simply because it is so amazing. And the light that I've seen return to their eyes, the purpose and the dignity they have now, I never in a million years would imagine that I could be part of a story like this. Well, it is an amazing story to, to hear and, and how God used what you had been through to get you to that place and then yes. to sit with these women from such a different culture and community. Yes. Yes. What do the women do with the things that they create? So shipping, you can imagine, is not very easy between Haiti and the United States. Um, and so truly what we do is we um, ship all of our things down there on a boat. We fit as much as we can in our suitcases. We go down there um, and hope that we've estimated enough supplies for six months. And then we bring all the stuff back in our suitcases and we um, we sell them on an Etsy shop and um, in a few different upscale shows that we can do, upscale craft shows. And we have seen amazing things happen. It's just incredible. It is. It's a beautiful story. When we, when we were first talking about what we were going to talk about today on the podcast, you, you said that the story of Annie and the story of Haiti are so woven together that yes. you couldn't talk about one without talking about the other. No. Right. Because you would never have gone to Haiti if it mm -hmm. weren't for the story of Annie. Right. Right. Because I think that our sorrow draws us together. And I never, I've never been in a place like Haiti where the sorrow is so prevalent. And I think here we can cover it up pretty easily. And there, because the poverty is so prevalent, they're just here they are, you know, and it was the first time I told my story in front of a group of people that they all nodded along. And I realized I am not alone here. We all have this sorrow. And so I, I think that the story of Annie really prepared me for relating to them and really being able to say, I've been there too. My life is not perfect. And here we are together in grief and hope, and we carry it all together.
Well, and I think that what we can learn so much from your story is that trying to look up out of your grief doesn't mean you have to go to Haiti. It no. might mean that you're just going no. down the street or yes. to a neighbor <laughs> that just looking up off, yes. we can see the opportunities that God places mm -hmm. in front of us. Right. And it may mean that you make a meal for another mom or you just buy a card and sign your name. It's just doing the small things that you know will help someone else. Is there anything else um, as we're talking to moms and, and to leaders, is there anything else that you would like to say to them to encourage them as we kind of wrap up today? I would say um, there's a verse in Proverbs that, that says to learn from the ant, to learn from their ways and be wise. And we can be faithful in the small thing and how the ants, they do small things every day and, and it all adds up to something big in the end. And so you're right. You don't have to do the big and crazy and unbelievable things. You just have to do the next right thing that God has asked you to do. No matter what that is, he will reward it and he will be with you in your sorrow and he will be with you in your hope. He will lead you. I want to remind everybody where they can hear more from you, Sarah. Uh, you can find her blog, um, two free ebooks and links to the, the Etsy store and the products that she mentioned that come from Haiti and a wealth of other information at sarahdamasca.com. And I'm going to spell it for you. It's S-A-R-A-H-D-A-M-A-S-K-A sarahdamasca.com. So we just want to thank you for being here today, Sarah, and for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much. And leaders, I just want to thank you for listening in. And I want to remind you of this. Very often, the difference between surviving and thriving as a leader is just our willingness to step up, learn something new, or do something different. So let's do those things together, because this is our year to thrive.